Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, welcome to Living History and Christmas is just around the corner, so what better time to talk about one of the great iconic moments of the First World War, the Christmas truce. And joining me to discuss that is Roger Lee from the Australian War Memorial. Roger, thank you for coming on the show. Pleasure, Matt. The Christmas truce. Now, I think this is going to be a fascinating yet controversial episode of the podcast because it looms large in the mythology of the First World War. There's a very interesting memorial that has now been built by UEFA on on the battlefield. That's a very polite description of it. Yeah, exactly. It's been controversially received. There's a lot lot of myth that swarms around this chapter of history. So what I'm really looking forward to is let's, let's dig into it a little bit. Let's talk about... The perception, let's talk about the reality. And then I really want to talk about the big picture. I think the reason this engages people is it speaks of this quite wonderful concept that enemies on a battlefield who spend every hour of every day trying to kill each other can actually take a pause and regain their humanity in, in, Mm. in in a world of inhumanity. So why don't we start? Tell us about the reality of the Christmas truce and the perception. There's a lot to unpack from what you just said um, in the current vernacular. Um, and the first thing is, of course, that the Christmas truce itself was, was not unique. Um, there were parts of the Western Front throughout the war that were known as um, nursery zones, live and let live zones, uh, areas where both sides had unofficially to come to terms with each other that they they wouldn't kill each other. Now, sometimes it was certain times of the day, and then parts of the trenches, particularly in the southern parts where the French and the Germans faced each other across trench lines that didn't move much during the war, they almost had a deal where they wouldn't shell each other during lunch and dinner times so they could have their meals in peace. There were times when they wouldn't... Uh, all, all sorts of people arranged truces to go out and recover their dead, recover their wounded, bury them, do that sort of stuff. It was very reciprocal, so, wasn't it? So, that if you're in a sector where you yeah. weren't shelling enemy, they wouldn't shell you in return. There's, there's this mythology that when you're having war between civilised people, there are rules that apply. Now, that's a load of rubbish, but in a sense, that sort of describes a bit of the thinking about what's going on on the Western Front. I mean, the Western Front, like every other war, had its bestial, horrible... You know, revolting moments. But it also had these little flashes of agreements between both lots of combatants that people have seized on and have created a whole industry out of. And the Christmas truce is a classic example of that, and that blasted memorial is, is one of them. 
um, just dealing with that, can I just say that um, uh, from the, the there are a few people who've done a fair bit of work in this, and I'm not one of them. So I'm, most of this is based on secondary source. Uh, I've done very little primary looking at this topic. But those who've looked into it said there is no evidence from the German side that they can find that say that the British and the Germans played football in no man's land. So just to give the background on this, the, 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 what we're talking about here is Christmas 1914, the yep. first year of the oh, war. Yeah, okay. And one of the, one of the most prevalent parts of the story is that during the informal truce that occurred, Christmas Day yep. 1914, is that the British and Germans played a played football, football match, match. Yep. in no man's land. And what it's led to in today, what it's led to is that football fans, particularly from the UK, now travel to the supposed site of this match yes. and leave football yes. paraphernalia. Yes. So it's become... It's, the it's become idea a shrine. Of foot, it's, it is. It's a shrine to yeah. football. Uh, yeah. It's not about history anymore. It's about football. Yeah. And now UEFA, the world body that governs yeah. football, has paid to build Correct. a pretty awful memorial at the supposed site of the Christmas yeah. truce. So yeah. just we'll before, unpack this for us. Yeah, I'll go back to that. But, I mean, there is no evidence. Um, uh, one of the reporters, uh, the evidence on the British side comes largely from diaries and letters. And um, a lot of it seems to have been not invented but written post the event. And one of the great commentators, I'll just look up his name, um, Henry Williamson, he was a private and he uh, wrote to his mother on Boxing Day and talks about it. Um, if, he's, if I'm not confusing him with somebody else, he eventually goes on to actually be a fairly strong member of the neo-Nazi party in the UK later in the war, but uh, later in the, in the century. But um, he reports on this, this football match they are conflating and fusing a number of different issues. And so let's let's go right back to the beginning. The Christmas truce, they calculate now, involved over 100,000 servicemen from both sides of the trenches and extended from the North Sea to the Swiss border in patches. There were areas of the trench lines where, not, where fighting did not stop. There were areas of the trench line where there was no fraternisation but there was no shooting. There were areas of the trench line where there was limited fraternisation and there were some small areas where there was a, f- a big degree of fraternisation, ironically, including Adolf Hitler's regiment, the List Regiment, in which they estimate that 50% of the regiment the front line crossed out into no man's land to mingle with the British who they were facing. So it's a very mixed and patched story. And it, it goes back to a whole raft of reasons. I mean, for a start, there was an attempt by the Pope and a couple of other, and the Women's Electoral League in the UK to arrange a formal truce for Christmas. The Pope appealed for an end to killing on, on Christ's Day, which was immediately dismissed by uh, the high commands, of course, and by the governments, of course. But some of the troops had, took this literally and did do that. Um, there were other areas where it happened by accident. Uh, they, you know, they start off with with a carol singing to each other, and then becomes a bit of a throwing of gifts. Which the first gift coming over would have worried him. Fortunately, hand grenades weren't that common in those days. <laughs> Otherwise, they might have been a bit nervous. So when people start throwing things in your trench in 1914, it's okay. Uh, so they, and of course, it grows from there. Uh, for the list regiment. It happens over three days. Uh, the Christmas Day, it's just an exchange across the trench lines, talking and singing. It's the next day where they get out of their trenches and mingle. So th- this this is not just one day either. It extends across a different number of days in different areas. So it's a fairly complicated story. Um, what it does do is that it, it demonstrates that, A, the war is still very young. Uh, the troops have not become embittered 
and hardened. I mean, the List Regiment had suffered pretty heavily by this stage. Their morale was pretty low. Ironically, this boosted their morale, so they kept fighting. So I'm not sure whether the British would be pleased to hear that. Um, but they hadn't got to the point where they hated their enemy. By 1916, something like this would have been unthinkable. It happened in 1915 on a much lesser scale. I was actually, um, I was reading recently, um, I think it was George Coppard that was a machine gunner um, with the British, mm. and he joined in 1915 and so his first yeah. Christmas was 1915 yeah. and he reported that the commanding officer said there will be no fraternisation like there was last year and his reply was you didn't have to worry about that we went out into no man's land we saw some Germans laying yeah. wire maybe they thought we'd take it easy because it was Christmas Eve and we ripped into them and killed yes. them all he said there yeah. was zero yeah. chance of any fraternisation whatsoever by 1915 even well that's not he's right there was much less it wasn't zero there were ex- recorded examples of it um, as I said to you before we started one example in Christmas 1915 was by an Australian uh, uh, force uh, HMAS uh, I have to look here Pine. my colleague the, the naval my formal naval historian friend and now colleague on the official history unit Dave Stevens, tells me that in 1915 at Christmas HMAS Pioneer was bombarding a German ship and a German port in East Africa somewhere and on Christmas Day they sailed into the harbour, anchored, had their Christmas Day, whatever it was, and then their band played and the Germans lined up to listen to the band as well as them <laughs> and nothing happened, despite the fact that they, before they'd been shelling each other. So Extraordinary. It, it, even Australia had a very small part to play in, the, in this notion of the Christmas truce. But in 1914, it was a different war. The other thing to remember is that both sides went to war thinking the war was going to be over by Christmas. And so when you get to Christmas, there's a symbology in getting to Christmas Day where everyone's thinking the war's going to be over. To the soldiers soldiers in the front line, it's quite obvious that Christmas, it, the war's not going to be over by Christmas. So what do you do? You've come in emotionally, uh, mentally prepared for a short war that's going to end soon. You've struck a bloody, horrible confrontation that's showing absolutely no signs of going away. If your enemy reaches out you just for a day of sanity in that... I'm not surprised that they agreed to, that, that, that this happened. Um, as I said, in some parts of the line, they were still trench raiding and killing. So it was not universal. But for me, the problem with the Christmas Day myth is, is a myth. It's been seized upon by all sorts of people, like UEFA, to tell a story which is relevant to today's audience, not then. I mean, there was this great philosophy um, before the war by the socialist movement that said, this war won't happen because when the two bodies of opposing socialists meet, they'll embrace each other as socialist brotherhood and they won't kill each other. That doesn't happen. So what they try and do then is use the Christmas truth, a truce as a myth, as, as, an, as a point to sustain their argument, saying, see, it was really there, but it was those horrible militarist leaders and politicians that stopped it happening. But really, deep down, they didn't want to kill each other. Well, that's probably true. They didn't, but they were still part of national armies and they were going to do it. And we're not talking here even here about... The British were professional and, and reservists up at 940. The Germans were largely reservists. So they weren't professionals. They were the representative of their society. So I'm sorry, socialist movement. The, the Brotherhood of Socialism did not uh, stop the war happening and it was never going to. Um, other people, you know, the humanists that think that human beings are basically wonderful and lovable seize on these sort of things as evidence that human beings are decent and they don't like killing each other. Um, I'm one of those who subscribes to the views that the, the, the human beings are amongst the worst because we kill for, uh, all the time for any sort of reason. We're slowly evolving out of that now. But So there were, so there were a lot of ideological positions on the Christmas truce which have elevated it beyond it is, and it's a good news story. 
it speaks to so many different people, doesn't yeah. it? That's what I. The thing that I find fascinating about the Christmas truce is that you've just mentioned quite a diverse range of interest groups that mm. it speaks to. It speaks to so many different people, That's true. Um, from yeah, football fans to history buffs. It's it's just right. it's something that just seems to cut through a relatively complicated story of the First World War and yeah. makes it simple and makes it human. It, and it's a little beacon of light in this great sea of inhumanity and death and destruction and all that sort of stuff. But the point I keep trying to make here is it doesn't survive. It happens once. A little bit in 1915, yeah, and as I said, they're rare examples. As you said, they're rare examples. By 1916, if you tried to walk out into no man's land on Christmas Day, uh, you wouldn't even your head wouldn't have come a couple parapet before a sniper would have got you. It just wouldn't happen. The other thing about the myth, too, is the way in which people can park reality to tell the story. And let's look at the football analogy. As I understand from, as the the secondary sources suggest, most of the football happens, and there are examples of, of football being played. Most of them are examples where units of the same side play football behind the line. Because if you have a look at what No Man's Land, even in 1914, what No Man's Land looks like, it's not really a nice flat playing field conducive to a nice little game of football. And who, in even in 1914, is going to waste space in their pack to carry a football? An inflated one, presumably, because they probably didn't have any way of blowing up one. Most of the evidence seems to suggest they played with things like bully beef cans or helmets or anything else, which is going to suggest that it's, it's more just a funny sort of kickabout rather than anything else. And again, most of this happens between units of the same side in behind the front line, not in the front line. And this is more, to me, this is more believable because it means the other side's not shooting at you. Because any movement behind the front line at any other stage of the war would have brought you know, artillery fire, machine gun fire, sniper fire, the whole lot. So obviously there was this this is Christmas Day, don't do that. So they can organise a little game. But this. Well, that's, a, that's actually a fantastic point, Roger, because mm. the, the freedom that would come from mm. being able, able to able stand to in the fresh air and walk around yeah. Yeah. would have absolutely stuck That's fast true. in the minds of those yeah. troops. Whether or And the, the, yeah. we've, we've kind of exaggerated it now to say, oh, the Germans got involved as well. Yeah. But even just oh, half yeah. a dozen blokes yeah. kicking a can around in yep. the open after having been stuck underground for so long would have been just... Breathtaking. Oh, that's true. Although, again, you've got to be careful not to uh, transpose the conditions of 1916-17 onto 1914. Trench systems were very rudimentary in December 1914. Uh, they were not the complex belts of wire. There was You could not have done it in, in 1916, apart from being shot at, even if both sides wanted to. There's so much wire. There's so many shell holes. There's so many unexploded uh, shells and all this sort of stuff out there in no man's land. You literally probably couldn't have done it. But the conditions haven't evolved to that point yet, so it's still it's still a bit primitive in 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 the structures there. So you can do this sort of stuff. It was one of the things you you mentioned that that is, is something that I've thought about with the Christmas truce as well. The fact that it only was sustainable if it happened at all. It only occurred in 1914, a little bit in 1915. Mm. It says the, the concept that the Christmas truce faded pretty quickly says more about inhumanity. To me, well, than the than the fact it exists in the first place, if that makes sense. The fact yeah, that we yeah. couldn't sustain it. If it went on every year of the war, if yeah. every year of the war there was a Christmas yeah. truce, you'd yeah. be able to look at that and say, see, humans are great, didn't we do a good thing? But the fact that almost immediately, there's, there's a naivety about the Christmas truce in the early years of the war that disappeared when the realities hit home from 1915 onwards. That's true, although there's still an, objecti- uh, an objectiveness about it. We still have truces right through the end of the war. For instance, after Fromel, with all their dead... They we're trying to arrange a truce to recover our wounded. Uh, that falls foul of communications snafu, not 
deliberate intent, as a number of people have alleged. But even, even in 1918, we can arrange a local truce to collect wounded, bury the dead, because uh, it's in both sides' interests to do that. The problem with the Christmas truth, truce is that the high command were worried about the impact on morale. They didn't want... And the high command, we also forget, this is still new for them. This is a new experience. How do you deal with this? They were probably worried, and I'm guessing here, but I'm assuming, knowing how high commands work, that if you fraternise with the enemy, you're going to find it, you're going to be reluctant to kill him when the fraternisation finishes. Now, the evidence was that none of that happened at all. So they're happily exchanging. In fact, uh, there's one, again, going back to my list regiment example, um, they were back in the front lines, and the next day, one of the Tommies, one of the Brits tried to renew it and was told to get back in his trench because that was all over. And any movement, they'd shoot at them. So it was done. It was done honestly, but then the war starts again. So I suspect uh, High Command was still sufficiently concerned about. It, though in 1915 there were very strong orders from the highest level down, government, High Command, right down to battalion and, and company level that this is not going to happen. Uh, Adolf Hitler, interestingly, uh, disapproved of it. Uh, in, in his when he when he comments on it, this stage by this stage he's out of the he's in regimental headquarters as a runner a very dangerous job, and he just sees this as they're not serious about war. You know, if, if you're going to have a war, you got to have a war. You can't you can't carry on like this. So it was interesting that one of his most fervent supporters on the UK side reports it well, and he takes a very dim view of it. So it was just an interesting bypass. But the, the degree to which it gets uh, manufactured, I mean. There are reports in some of the secondary sources that report on this game about as though this alleged game, that the one that was allegedly around um, uh, in the scenes, that the score was 3-2. <laughs> now, we can find no evidence except this one letter back. Now, you would have thought if it was that organised there were enough people involved, there'd be more than one letter, particularly on the German side, because the Germans didn't quite censor their, private, their troops' mail the same way as we did in the early parts of the war, at least and no one's found a reference to it yet. You would have thought that would have made quite an impact. There's so many impracticalities with the whole mm. idea of a football match in no man's land, as you say. Right. How did they choose the troops? How did they yeah, organise exactly. the well, whole... It's like just, it's just, yeah, exactly. It, the, the whole thing That's right. just, uh, just doesn't really stand up to the logic test. No. It's a nice sentiment. It's a great of course, story. A nice and, and clearly, if 100,000 troops are involved, there was fraternisation. The other point is there was uh, similar things happened on the Eastern Front. And uh, there was examples of fraternisation at different times of the year for different religious groups. Um, in the, in the, the Greek, down and around the Greek area, um, um, the Orthodox troops on Orthodox Christmas, apparently in, in early, 20, uh, early 1915, had periods of fraternisation as well. So this is not a uniquely Christian, it's not a uniquely Western Front. Uh, I suspect it's unique. I don't even know whether it's uniquely World War one story, I don't think it is, I think there are examples in other conflicts where this is happening. So it's a good story and and I think the reason it's got legs is because it stands in such contrast to all the other stories about the First World War. I think that's, is- that's, that's crucial to the, mm. the one thing I always say about the First World War when we look back on it at a 100 year remove, we cannot comprehend it. We cannot comprehend no. how it was allowed to happen, mm. how so many people were prepared to go off and fight, how the fighting could be so brutal. There's, there's elements of it that in a modern society we just can't compute. We did the same thing 20 or 30 years later on bigger scale. Well, that's very true. But I, I think 
with all of these wars, we, we you know, and especially as civilians, we, we, we're mm. not going off and doing military service and, mm. and, and considering a career in the military, most of us. We just can't comprehend it. So I think what we do is we look for those elements yep. that make it a bit well, more absorbable. We, and we don't like the idea of saying millions of people were prepared to go off. The Holocaust is the same. Mm. We just can't compute the idea that hundreds of thousands or millions of people were prepared to slaughter millions of other people. Yeah. It just doesn't work for no. us. And so what you so, look is for those beacons. And with yep. things like the Holocaust, we look for the good things like Schindler's List and all those yeah. sorts of things. And with the First World well, War, we look to the Christmas truce. Well, I, I argument the sentiment's very similar to the sentiment in Australia, back on my favourite topic, which has elevated uh, Simpson to the position he is. I mean, Simpson, in a, in a war of, of killing, Simpson is, is a saviour. He's a stretcher-bearer. He doesn't, he's not offensive. He's still brave. Uh, not as brave as the mythmakers would have you, but he's still brave and he's, he's a likeable young man. So people grab on this small story and pump it up into a huge story. So the Simpson that most Australians know is not the Simpson who actually existed and the Simpson that most Australians know what he did is not what the real Simpson did. It doesn't seem to matter to the myth because the myth is trying to put some humanity back into what was a very inhuman period if for Australia. And I think the Christmas truce is the same sort of effect. I mean, we have one on May the 19th on Gallipoli. There's a truce where the Turks and the Australians get out of their trenches, walk around, bury their dead, exchange cigarettes, have a chat. Both sides try to do a bit of clandestine intelligence gathering, but that's you know, that's accepted. Um, it's it's a pragmatic decision because the, the Turkish dead are decomposing and both sides are losing as a result of this. So we this is not an uncommon Phenomenon. It's the way this one is portrayed. I suspect, again, part of it too is because it was not a deliberate military thing. Uh, you know, getting out together to celebrate Christmas and sing Christmas carols to each other, is, it doesn't appear in military doctrine anywhere. This is a bit unusual. So I, I, all of these little factors come together to make it different. And I guess my biggest disappointment is, in making it different, people have made it so bigger, so much bigger, and so much, therefore, more unbelievable that they run the risk of the story imploding under the under the weight of its own uh, errors to a point where people dismiss it out of hand. It was still an, a fascinating phenomenon, and it needs, I think, better scholarship than it's been given. The guys who've done work in it have done a good job, and don't get me wrong, I quote them all the time. But I think we need to look more into what, what was the reaction of the local commanders. Um, we know a bit about the List Regiment again because people were interested in Hitler, so in recording Hitler they find these fringe bits but what were the reaction of the British commands? And I know very little about what the French reaction was, except at the senior command levels. So did the, were the French line battalion officers, were they supportive? Were they apprehensive? How did they react? We don't know. One thing that struck me, Roger, when you were describing all that as well, uh, especially the relationship of Simpson and this idea, is that we should remember where these myths came from. It was a very religious time. Religion mm. is very much intertwined yes. with the story of the First World War. People were very religious at the time. And I can't help but note, Simpson, not a combatant, a bit of a saviour, a bit of a Jesus figure, uh, yep. Christmas truce, exactly. the celebration. You know, there are very strong religious overtones that in the immediate post-war years would make these the stories that religious people would choose to tell. And that's that's perfectly natural yeah, as well. That's true. I always find it ironic that the Germans in both World War go to war with a belt buckle that says God with us and both times they've lost <laughs> so in a sense you know uh, it, it makes it it's a challenging time for faith as well I suspect uh, but yeah I think you're right and it's, it all ties in this whole level of expectation as well I mean I, I can't get away from the fact that the poor old diggers at this time the poor old soldiers in the front lines must have been feeling a little bit let down they left their families on both sides 
on the understanding they'd be home by Christmas. And here they are at Christmas and all. So I'm, I, I, morale, we know that the morale with the number of the German regiments was down. We know the list regiments' morale was down because it's recorded as such. I suspect that a lot of that came about the fact that we've embarked on something we don't know when the end date is. So let's let's do something now to mark the occasion, if you will. And and I suspect a lot of that happened because by the time 9, 15, 16, everybody knows the war's not going to be over in six months. Everybody knows it's going to be a, a killing match until one side hasn't got anybody left. So by then, we've become more cynical. We've become more, uh, what's the word, resigned. In 1914, there was still enthusiasm. I mean, the troops still go off to the front in 1914, you know, cheering and singing. We don't do much of that later in the war. And I suspect it's all wrapped up in this whole thing. So I think the mental and the psychological state of the soldiers themselves would not have allowed this sort of thing to happen later in the war. Just as we finish it up, Roger, the, the, it seems the broad human element that people like to embrace in this story is the idea of enemies in any war laying down their arms mm. and being a little bit human again. Have you seen in your extensive research of many wars, have you seen examples of that throughout conflict, that mm. there are examples, not not necessarily just Christmas, but there's examples of enemies oh, yeah. coming together and showing their human side? It, it's quite common. Um, more common than perhaps the average uh, non-military historian would understand. I mean, you've only got to go, go to Gallipoli and see that humongous statue of that Turk rescuing the Australian. Uh, I think that's now been challenged, hasn't it? As it, it has, yeah. Its, it's historical accuracy is subject to question. And there were plenty of examples. I mean, Australian stretcher bearers in the First World War would pick up anybody, even if you were wearing a German uniform. Unless there was an Australian beside you, if they were going past and saw a wounded German, they would pick him up and take him in, even though being shot at. And so I think despite what, what the anti-war and the anti-militarist brigade would say, the average soldier in the field doesn't loathe his average opponent. At the individual level, humanity is still there largely. But they're fighting a war. I mean, my father helped rearrange property values in the Ruhr by dropping 4,000-pound bombs on them for, for about six months. Um, he did, when he retired, living behind him, he discovered a German immigrant. Uh, this is a true story, just outside Karoy. And they worked out this guy was in the anti-aircraft artillery shooting at Dad during the war. And Dad kept saying, good thing you were a bad shot. He kept saying, good thing you were a bad bomb drop. <laughs> so at the individual level, there was no drama. But when you're pulled into a system where you do what you're told and everything else... It's easy to represent people doing things. So the Christmas truce gives individuals a chance to be an individual and expose you know, their genuinely deep-felt deep felt, um, views. And I think that's, that was its benefit. In fact, the Christmas truce is a great, is a, is a great analogy for the, for, the, for the way the war goes. The fact that you would... <laughs> the idea of a Christmas truce in 1917 in Passchendaele is just ridiculous. Well, Roger... Thank you for your insights. It's a fascinating topic and um, you've uh, been, uh, it's been really wonderful. So thank you very much for your time and uh, it's always great to have you on the show. Okay, thanks, Matt. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 